and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm chair of the Professional Nursing Committee of the Royal College of Nursing. I'm a children's cancer nurse by background and I live in North Yorkshire. On this week's edition of Nursing Matters, we look at new research which uncovers the remarkable complexity of long COVID, from brain fog to fatigue to multi-organ damage. This week, I'm joined again by co-host and fellow PNC member for London, Professor Alison Leary, who's back on the podcast for the first time since our very first episode. So hello, Alison. It's great to have you back. Hi, Rachel. It's good to be back. Alison, one of the reasons you've not been on recent episodes is because your husband's recovering from being seriously ill with COVID. Great to have you back and just wondering how he is now and how that's all been for the two of you. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, it's been it's been a really difficult time. And you can really see from the, uh, you know, living with somebody, the impact of COVID. My husband was in, in St. Thomas's for 76 days, including almost three weeks in intensive care. And mm. it was a, a really, obviously, very, very difficult time and huge support from colleagues and uh, friends in the community, which which was lovely. But you can really see the impact it has on someone that was relatively fit. And the sort of the things that people have to deal with. So I can quite understand how it's going to cause a huge impact in the population and and for the profession. So, Rachel, Boris Johnson has just set out his policy plans in the Queen's speech. What do you think nurses in particular need to look out for? I think nurses will recognise there's actually quite a lot missing from the Queen's speech. And I think we can see that once again, the government's missed the opportunity to really address social care. We've talked before about how critical that is, how critical it is that social care receives adequate attention, adequate funding, and how intertwined health and social care services is. And I think that's really been brought into even greater focus by the pandemic. The Queen's speech does flag the forthcoming health and social care integration bill. So I hope that this may be the opportunity to really get to grips with these issues as all parts of the health and care services are in desperate need of investment with workforce shortages the the top concern. Of course nursing staff make up the largest part of the workforce. We've talked I think probably in every episode so far about our current staffing crisis. We're still hearing about more beds, new furniture. I think as you've said again Alison that there's talk of beds and the government still hasn't really learned that however welcome investment in new infrastructure may be, it's people and it's nurses who are needed as the health and care system really fights to recover from the the pandemic. And that requires investment and it requires a proper workforce plan. So we have the Queen's speech, but what nurses need to look out for is what comes next in the health and social care integration bill, which must address our current workforce crisis and As you know, the Royal College of Nursing is calling for the Secretary of State to be held responsible and accountable for planning and funding the healthcare workforce. And nurses deliver the majority of patient care. And with our current shortages, then patient safety is at risk. As I mentioned, we're looking at long COVID this week. And over a year into the pandemic, are we any closer to establishing what long COVID really is and how to treat it? How does it affect individuals, health services and the nursing profession? To discuss all that, we've got a very special guest with us, Dr Elaine Maxwell. Welcome, Elaine, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. 
So, Elaine, you're currently working as a scientific advisor on long COVID at the National Institute of Health Research, the NIHR. You're the author of the NIHR's second review of long COVID, which was published, I think, in March of this year. You are a nurse and you, I believe, had left the register but rejoined the temporary register at the start of the pandemic and then went back into practice in intensive care. What was that experience like? Oh, well, that was interesting. I had thought I'd finished my clinical career as a nurse, but uh, when we saw how severe the situation was in Italy, I knew I had to go back and do something. And I had been an ITU sister many, many moons ago. So I went and worked in my local intensive care unit. And the things that made it difficult were not the things that I thought would make it difficult. So Human physiology hasn't changed that much in the sort of 30 years since I'd worked regularly in ITU. And yes, the ventilators looked very strange. They looked like iPads. And I was wondering where my cape ventilator was. But it was actually quite easy to adjust to that and to the drugs. The challenges were really the challenges associated with COVID-19. And they were twofold. They were really around the isolation. So I was working in theatre anaesthetic rooms where there would be two patients, two nurses, full PPE, but the doors were closed for very good infection control reasons. But it felt very claustrophobic and quite isolated, particularly on night duty. And the second thing that probably affected me more was normally when you're working with patients in intensive care, you know their history you know something about them because their family are there and there are pictures of them all around the bed and you have a sense of caring for a person, a personality. Whereas we were looking after people for long periods, six, seven weeks, ventilation, not unusual, where you didn't know anything about them and, and relatives would ring in the middle of the night and you didn't know them and they were distraught and wanted you to give them some comfort, some hope. And you didn't know them as people and you didn't know the patients as people. So the emotional labour for me was far harder than working in the PPE, difficult as that was, or returning to practice and trying to gen up on new drugs. And, And I think that's something that I only did for two months. People who've had to do that for a year, that's a huge strain. Yeah, I think that sort of lack of connection between the you as a, a as a nurse and the and the family must have been very difficult for people to understand to handle to kind of get to grips with oh absolutely and then of course when eventually some patients did recover and were preparing for extubation a lot of them had been sedated for a long time because normally if you ventilated for that long it's because you've got a neurological problem these people mm. are having high levels of sedatives and so there were all sort of associated hallucinations and people telling you stories that you could sort of see was a vague memory of what happened to them when they were ventilated. And and that was difficult because they were quite distressed. And Mm. some of them thought their family had been involved in this. So there were some family dynamic problems. So it was really that psychological, emotional trial that I, I think... I don't haven't heard a lot of people talk about, and I think it's you know be interesting to hear Alison's view of this mm. because, however hard it was for me, it must have been far far worse for relatives who couldn't come and visit, 
were talking to nurses they didn't know because of course some of the comfort we give of nurses is the relationship we have with the families which we also didn't have mm. yeah Alison how how did it feel being on as Elaine says the other side of that really yeah it, it was a, a, a very it was a very distressing experience actually and I I do actually remember because I, I would ring the ITU a couple of times a day and they were always very very patient with me because obviously I had a lot of questions and lots of my husband's friends are intensivists so they would right. give me questions to ask as well. Yeah. I just remember I gave some news that, you know, we'd, we'd become great aunt and great uncle to mm. uh, and, and could they tell uh, my husband? But, he, you know, he's, he's obviously paralysed and sedated. And the nurse on the other end of the phone sounded so relieved. She was so happy that I'd shared that piece of information. It dawned on me then that, you know, not to be able to make that connection with a person must be very, very difficult. So I, I started to volunteer when I when I when I was ringing up, particularly because my husband ended up in a paediatric ITU, um, right. looked after by paediatricians and paediatric nurses, and they were very very much into the the family dynamic, and and they would ask me things, and and I would volunteer, and and it, we had that kind of connection, and that that was incredibly comforting actually that they cared enough to ask, and cared enough to ask how I was. So yeah, it it was actually really important I think is probably underestimated that human connection is just critical mm. isn't it I yeah. Think. yeah yeah so Elaine you you did that for what a, a, a couple of months is that right yeah I did it a, a couple of months the first wave was actually over quite quickly when so NIHR seconded me back to work uh, as they did an awful lot of their clinical staff and actually, I thought it would be for longer, but by the end of May, that peak had, had dropped off. So I went back to the NIHR and we were talking about, I was working in dissemination and knowledge broking, and they were saying, well, what do you think our next review should be on? And having that memory of patients in intensive care fresh in my mind, I said, well, there's going to be an awful lot of people with post-intensive care syndrome we need to be looking at what we know about how we can help these people. So we started off thinking that we would be looking at the evidence on rehabilitation. We put together a steering group of people to help us, and it became clear very quickly that actually it wasn't just people who'd been in intensive care. All sorts of people who'd had COVID-19, from people who'd had it asymptomatically people who'd had very mild disease right through to people who'd been in ITU were having ongoing problems. And so our review changed to what we didn't know what to call at the first at first instance. So we called it living with COVID-19. More latterly, it's been known as long COVID. And we published our first review in October. And as you say, our second review in March what are the differences that you found between that sort of October review and the, and the March review? So the October review, there'd been very little research published. There was an awful lot of opinion pieces. There were follow-up of people who had been in hospital. So by October, I don't think anybody had followed up people who hadn't been in hospital or, or, or if they had, it had been case studies. So we went to do our own work. We uh, interviewed people with long COVID who we'd recruited from social media. And they were telling us very different things from what the research papers were telling us. So they were particularly talking about the corona coaster, as they call it, the fact that symptoms can appear 
a long time after the initial infection. So some people had a very mild or asymptomatic infection and three months later they would start to develop cardiac symptoms or neurological symptoms. And we found the same actually when we started to talk to people who'd been in intensive care. They had the sort of things you might have expected after intensive care, but overlaying that they were getting new symptoms and that certainly come out in a number of large studies that have come out in the last couple of weeks actually there is this remitting and relapsing not everybody was picking up that these symptoms were due to their COVID infection or associated with the COVID infection people were presenting to primary care and people would think it was just a new disease so We became increasingly concerned that there were a lot of people who had symptoms that were not getting the support and weren't being listened to. And this was exacerbating their problems. And a lot of people um, still talk about whether long COVID is psychological in origin. I think it's quite clear from the evidence now that there's a massive amount of pathology that can be seen so lots of evidence that people even people who didn't go to hospital have um, multi-organ damage lots of evidence about clotting disorders very high d-dimer levels three four five months after an infection even in people who weren't in hospital and quite a lot of immune response that is slightly different than we might normally see after a viral infection so the, the challenge at the moment is that there are a very large number of people and potentially by the autumn in the UK, there will be more people with long COVID than people with dementia. So this is a massive problem. Yeah. We don't understand what causes it. There seem to be a number of different disease pathways. So it's probably an umbrella term for a number of different things that are going on. And it's not behaving in a linear pattern. So I think... Uh, In my expectation, I think a lot of people's expectation was that this would be a recovery tale to an acute infection. But what we're seeing is some people are more ill now than they were with their initial infection. So it's challenging our mental models about infections and recovery. And that is difficult. It's difficult, therefore, to come up with a checklist of symptoms. In fact, there's a a patient-led research study that identified 205 different symptoms. We know that it can affect every part of the body, so lots of cardiac, respiratory, but renal, liver, dermatology, brain, uh, lots of evidence of brain changes on PET scans, just about any part of the body can be affected. So that makes it really hard to make sense of it and and particularly to decide how we move forward with it, how we help people who've got these problems. So are we at a stage now where, you know, there is a sort of agreed, accepted diagnosis of long COVID? Are, are, Are we there with that or is it that real spectrum that is still what we would describe as as long COVID and that umbrella term? So there is no definition. So the NICE guidelines that came out before Christmas identified long COVID as, it identified three different phases. The acute phase, which symptoms up to four weeks, 
the ongoing phase, which is up to 12 weeks, and what they call post-COVID, which is after 12 weeks. And they say it's any symptom associated with a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infection, not explained by any other diagnosis. So not very precise. What does seem to be clear is that there are some things that we've seen before and we do understand. So there's a lot of people who get a post-viral fatigue that resolves by 12 weeks. And we see that after a lot of viral infections and indeed other infections. So the figure that um, ONS came up with of 1.1 million people having symptoms at four weeks, a lot of those people have got post-viral fatigue. That will resolve by 12 weeks without any treatment. But what we do know is there's a substantial number of people who still have symptoms after 12 weeks. And it's not about a recovery from being critically ill. It's not about post-viral fatigue. There's a different uh, mechanism happening there. The ONS latest release on the 1st of April suggested that there were about half a million people who had symptoms that lasted more than 12 weeks. And other studies, in particular, some that are just coming out from the USA, show that it's about 14% of people who are still ill at six months. Now, if we think about the ONS figure saying it was around half a million on the 1st of April, that wouldn't have included the people who were ill in the second and third waves in December to February. I think it wouldn't be at all unreasonable to assume that we might have over a million people who've been ill more than six months by the autumn. And that's going to be a huge challenge for health services because we don't understand the condition. They need slightly different support. It's behaving a bit more like a long-term condition than one that you go and seek treatment for and you get your drugs and you get better. And that is actually going to impede our ability to do the NHS recovery of other services. Because one of the interesting things about the ONS data is the group most likely to have long COVID symptoms are working aged women who work in healthcare, not social care, healthcare. So social care is affected, but you but healthcare on its own is the single largest group of people reporting long COVID. And that sounds to me an awful like like nurses. Do we know why that is, Elaine? Well, it goes back to what the different causes are. There's a growing evidence now about different immune responses and particularly T-cell responses. And we know from other conditions that there is a chromosomal sex difference in the way that men and women respond to threats. And women are more likely to have this particular T-cell response that we're seeing in long COVID. And you see that with a lot of other conditions. One of the things I've been, uh, it's been suggested to me a number of times by male panellists is that long COVID is more commonly reported by women because men are more stoic, um, which my reply is, <laughs> have, I, experience. <laughs> have you never met a man with a cold? Um <laughs> We, we know that most medical research has been done with men. Women have hormonal changes, which means they're often excluded from research. And Caroline Criada Perez wrote about this in her book. A lot of our understanding is around men, and then we just apply it to women. And statins are a perfect example. All the research on statins was done in men. It doesn't have, they don't have such a strong effect in women, and women have more side effects. So there does seem to be something going on around a biological sex response to this virus. 
And we need much more research on that. One of the reasons why we might be seeing more long COVID in people who work in healthcare is there is some suggestion that it's it's due to viral persistence. So we know from a number of studies that people will test positive for COVID-19 for some time after their symptoms have abated or asymptomatically, and that might still be in their nasopharyngeal area, but also picking up a lot of COVID-19 in the bowel. And there's a suggestion that the viral persistence produces a specific immune response that is late onset. It isn't a a weak response at the time that continues. It's the fact that people are carrying the viral load for so long. But that's a theory at the moment rather than any clear evidence. And clearly brings into focus concerns, you know, around then PPE, all, all the things that should protect people from that viral load and, and very often haven't been in place to, to do so. It does, but it also suggests that maybe as our understanding of COVID continues, if we do get some drugs to shorten the period, um, they should be applied to everybody and not just those who are critically ill in hospital. So it's really interesting to see how this uh, disease is affecting women. And I was just going to ask you about children as well. Do you think it's affected children in particular, Elaine? Not children in particular, but I think the assumption was that long COVID would affect the same people as have severe COVID. And we see a very different pattern. So we see the people who are admitted to hospital are more likely to be male, more likely to be older. What we see in long COVID is that affects more women than men and people who are younger. So children who really have very little hospitalisation for their COVID infections are definitely getting long COVID, not to the same extent as adults. So the proportion of children who have long COVID is much smaller than the proportion of adults. But there are definitely uh, children who have long COVID. There are this, this is clear in the ONS studies from their self-reported symptoms, which I think, I can't remember the exact figures, but I, I think for children, it's something like 8% of all children still have symptoms five weeks after the initial infection. And we are starting to see some studies about the effect of long COVID in children. There's uh, been a couple in Italy, one in Russia, one in Sweden, and there has been a, a study by the Long COVID Kids uh, support group in the UK of 518 children. So um, whilst it isn't a large number of children, it's still an important factor. And I think it's going to be a challenge, both with children and older people, because we're also seeing some Long COVID in older people, even though it's more common in working age people. Both children and older people present atypically in just about everything, as we know. (laughs) I think for children, there might be some difficulties in identifying whether their failure to achieve academically at school is due to the brain fog or cognitive dysfunction of long COVID, or whether it's due to social isolation. Same with older people. There's some qualitative data that in care homes, people who've had long COVID, have had COVID-19 and recovered are more likely to fall. 
And that may fit with the post-viral fatigue, or it may fit with the fatigue we see that is associated with mitochondrial stress. So some of the immune studies that have been done show that the markers for mitochondrial stress are much higher in people with long COVID. And it may be that that's causing falls. So I think at the moment, we have to assume anybody who's had a COVID-19 infection may have long COVID and it needs to be a differential diagnosis for everybody until proved otherwise. Just as we've been talking there, one of the things that that strikes me, and I think there was something in the report was because you've said, you know, it needs to be a differential diagnosis if people have had COVID, but we're also seeing it, am I right, in people who've never had a diagnosis of COVID. So it has to be an assumption. Am Am I right there? Well, Last year in the UK, in most of the world, testing for COVID-19 was not available in the community. We put all our eggs into one basket. So there's a whole load of people last year who, if they didn't get admitted to hospital, certainly weren't being seen by their GPs because that was very restricted access, didn't Mm. have a confirmation, a PCR confirmation. As we know, antibodies can drop off quite quickly. So by the time they got to see their GPs, they didn't have positive antibodies. So this has been a real challenge for healthcare and for researchers. Researchers have really struggled with this because you have to believe your patients. And a lot of people who have symptoms which are entirely consistent with the symptoms seen in people that we know have positive confirmation are finding they're just not being believed. And they've got very debilitating symptoms. So the challenge is, do we assume that people who say they've had a COVID infection really did? Or do we say all our research can only take place in people that we have got laboratory tests for? And that's a really interesting issue for the research. I think we're having some paradigm wars here because Mm. this is such an unusual disease. It is behaving in different ways we expected. We haven't got a battery of diagnostic tests, not even from the initial illness, right through to if I come to you and if I come to you and say, I get dizzy and have palpitations on exertion, you know, what diagnostic tests do you do for me? You might rule out myocarditis, you might rule out an embolism. But actually, how do you rule out some of these autoimmune diseases? How do you decide it's a panic attack caused by my psychological distress of being socially isolated? We have to think about providing healthcare in a new paradigm. And I think researchers and health professionals are really struggling with this. And I think this is where nursing really could come into its own, because nursing doesn't have to be based on a medical model of diagnostic tests. I think it it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the whole disease that's affecting mostly women is now considered a psychological disease and that, that kind of model. So, you know, and it's not the first time that that's happened. I mean, what do you think our response as a profession should be? Well, coming back to this point about women, I, I think that is a really important point. And actually one of the things that because of the size of this pandemic, we know that there are very clear pathologies. We've done PET scans, we've done MRIs, we've done extensive blood tests. We know that for a significant number of people, including those who never had a positive confirmation of their disease and were not admitted to hospital, that there is visible pathology. 
So it's a bit of a breakthrough moment now. And, and I know the ME um, CFS community are really frustrated because they've been saying similar things for a long time and didn't get the attention. I think it is beyond doubt now that for a very large number of people, there is a clear physical pathology. You just have to know where to look for it. And we've been looking in the wrong direction for a lot of things. This is not going to be a disease that you can go and get a course of X drug for eight days and then you'll be better. So this is very much in the long-term conditions disease. And I, I think that nursing should have a really important role. But I don't see nursing in that space. I, I don't see nurses doing research on long COVID. I don't see nurses coming forward and saying, this is the service model that we can contribute to, because there will have to be a different service model. The NHS does not have the capacity to deal with a million extra people within its existing service. I guess, Elaine, sort of not having a clear pathology, and you just said, you know, it's not like you can just go off and get a course of medication or something. Are we a stage where there are some sort of acknowledged treatments or is the symptomatology so very diverse that actually there might be different treatments for different presentations? So I think that um, there are a number of things that we can do to help people with long COVID at the moment, even though we don't fully understand it and there isn't a very clear um, pharmaceutical treatment for it. We know that a significant number of people will have a post-viral fatigue that will resolve itself in 12 weeks. But the difficulty is when you're in it, you don't know if you're that category. So we need to help people understand what the red flags are, that they might have something that needs more intervention. So there's a lot of reassurance and education needed there. Uh, There are people who need post-critical illness rehabilitation And there are some people who are deconditioned who do need exercise. Exercise is very contentious because there are two camps. The either the exercise cures everything or exercise will make it worse. And actually, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. People need to work out how to pace themselves, how to titrate their exercise to their symptoms. And they need help with that, health education, um, support working out their personal strategies We know from a big study by the US Veterans Affairs Administration that a lot of people with long COVID need more painkillers. Myalgia, muscle pain is a really big problem for a lot of people. We know that people are getting more antihypertensive drugs. People are getting more hypoglycemic drugs. We know that diabetes and uh, glucose mechanisms are affected. And so There are individual symptoms that need to be treated and managed. They won't cure the long COVID, but they do need to be effectively managed. And and if they're not, they may lead to adverse incidents. We know that clotting is uh, an issue, even in people with long COVID. So some people may need some oral anticoagulants. And some people with brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, that's their major issue. It's the reason why a lot of people can't go back to work. We do know from neuropsychologists that there are strategies to deal with this effectively. Uh, Cognitive dysfunction is well known in diseases like multiple sclerosis. So I think there are some multiple sclerosis nurse specialists out there who should be able to give nursing colleagues a lot of advice on how to handle that. And, And I think we have to 
think of it as a long-term condition, even though for some people it may resolve by six months or 12 months. Uh, But there's a lot to learn from how we manage those conditions. And and nurses should be at the forefront of that. And why do you think they're not? I think it's difficult. I think long COVID has only emerged really, the discussions about it have only really happened in the last six months. So that's quite a short time period. Mm. I think the focus was very much on the acute COVID infections. You know, NIHR, myself, we were stopped doing what we were doing and went to work in intensive cares. A lot of nurses are burnt out. I think it's difficult for people to think that there's still an ongoing problem. People want to think vaccines have saved the world. We'll all have a bit of a holiday, then we'll be back to normal. The idea that there's this new workload is psychologically difficult to deal with when you thought the worst horrors were over. But that's why we need strategic leadership in nursing to say, actually, we need to be on the front foot because if we're sitting here in a year's time saying there are all these people long COVID and we haven't thought about how we're going to manage it, that will be a failure on our part. And given that a lot of the people suffering are our colleagues, they are nurses, we need to be thinking about this so that there is a nurse um, who's sharing her story on social media at the moment who's 52, who's six months into her long COVID journey. She's been in hospital for the last three weeks. She's still there. They haven't done the full range of diagnostics. And they've told her they're going to discharge her to a care home. So her family are going around looking at older people's care homes. You know, this is not good for some 52-year-old nurse. It's something that nursing really needs to get its head around. Almost all people with long COVID will be cared for in the community. And certainly the Queen's Nursing Institute has created a community of practice for people to discuss mm. what they're doing. But but we know we're short of district nurses and community nurses anyhow. So have we got the capacity within the existing um, workforce in community nursing? I, I I really think we're going to have to have a different model. I mean, we don't have I don't think we have got capacity in community nursing, even though the will is there. I don't think we've got the GPs. I don't think the long COVID assessment clinics are going to be able to cope with the number of people who are coming through. And they are just assessment clinics. They're not planning to follow these people up and support them through their journey. And somebody is going to have to seize the moment and and offer some real leadership. Elaine, I know you could talk forever on it. Is there anything particular that you think you would really want to talk about that we haven't asked you about or we haven't covered? Um, I've covered it a little bit, but I think there's, there's this whole thing about patients being believed. So there's a lot of discussion about the extent to which long COVID is a psychological response to uncertainty and isolation. And of course, we can't ignore that that may well be true and there are some people who are anxious for whom the pandemic has created some psychosomatic responses but I think much more likely is if I had a series of symptoms that were highly debilitating and nobody could tell me what caused them how long they were going to last and uh, whether and couldn't offer me any treatment I think that would make me anxious and probably a bit depressed So it may well be that it's not the anxiety and depression causing the symptoms, but the symptoms causing the anxiety and depression. 
We know that there is a huge burden on people with long COVID, but bearing in mind the people most likely to have it are working aged women. There's going to be a much wider burden because these are the prime unpaid carers for both children and elderly relatives. And if you have this woman who's sandwiched in the middle, who can no longer care for her own children, but perhaps more importantly, her elderly relatives, that's going to put a huge strain on society in general and social care. We might see a whole load of people who are managing independently with the help of their family who now need to go into older people's social care. So huge impacts on the whole of society, not just the individual. That's interesting because you you don't really hear that being talked about at all, in fact. No, you don't. And in fact, in our second review, we, we well, we did a survey before we did the second review. We did it in November last year and we uh, had 3,286 responses. 39% of people said their long code was interfering with their ability to care for their dependents. 36% said their inability to work was putting them into financial difficulties. There are much wider impacts for this on society than just symptoms and healthcare. That's certainly what we're hearing anecdotally and also through the work with QNI. So the you're right, community nursing just, you know, is overwhelmed. It was overwhelmed before the start of the pandemic. But they're anecdotally also reporting that their increase in workload is also because carers can't care for the people they would have normally cared for. Huge. And and actually coming back to the children, we're also seeing because although it happens in children, it's less common in children, more children having to care for their relatives, uh, their parents. So we're going to see an increase in children as carers. But because long COVID isn't a formally recognised disease at at this point, there are just temporary ICD codes, uh, it's hard to capture who they are. And because we haven't got confirmations of PCR tests from last year, it's hard to even know where you would go and sample for your research. So I think this is just Mm -hmm. going to unfold more and more over the next couple of years. And, And I do think it is a silent epidemic. We're almost at the end of the podcast, and that means a question from one of our listeners. So remember, you can ask us anything. Just tweet your question to at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters, and we'll pick one to ask. This time, Kat has followed up on our last episode. And actually, I think this question really brings together the themes from our last episodes when we were talking about gender in nursing and some of the things that we've talked about today. Because what Kat asks is what we think the RCN should be doing to support and advocate for female nurses, given how COVID has disproportionately impacted women. And I think what we've heard today from you, Elaine, is not only how disproportionately it's impacted women in the acute phase, but also in long COVID, we're seeing greater prevalence in women, greater prevalence in health workers. So, Alison, any thoughts as to how, you know, what we as the Royal College of Nursing should could be doing to to support and advocate for female nurses? I think there are several things that the college could do, actually. So um, certainly from looking at it from an employment issue, it's becoming very apparent that there are some employment issues, perhaps particularly for nurses working outside of the NHS. We've seen several big surveys now where people have had um, very limited access to things like sick pay. 
Mm. So just from a practical point of view, I think the, the union side of the college really needs to act on that. Perhaps in a more strategic way, we obviously react to things as they come uh, as individuals, but perhaps we need a strategy for that. And mm. I was also thinking about some of the things that Elaine said around the, 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 the sort of paradigm was about how people are viewing this. Yeah, I think the college could certainly give, and it shouldn't be needed, but it sounds like it is, legitimacy to the experience of nurses that are suffering um, from long covid by supporting them either practically or or in, in other arenas. Elaine, anything you'd like to add? Um, well, I'd also like to add that it, it would be nice to see the RCN picking up this mantle about how most medical research is conducted with men. And mm. that actually, mm. this isn't just about long COVID. As I've said, this, the, the research on statins is mostly in men. And when you apply that in the real world, you don't get the same results in women. So I think there is something about recognising that women are biologically different. And and research needs to consider their needs as well as the male participants. And the other thing, um, Alison, just one final thing that this week, the RCM published our nursing workforce standards. And in this episode, as in to say all our previous episodes, I think we've talked a lot about about workforce and workforce capacity. So we'll be discussing our workforce standards with Professor Jane Ball in more detail in our next episode. But what do we need to know about them now? What should our listeners know about them? I think the I've actually just had a conversation with someone this morning from another trade union, and their remark was, it, "It's good to see what we already know written down." And I think <laughs> that that's actually really important. So becoming familiar with them and, you know, there, there is nothing that's really new in there. It's about best practice, mm. particularly best practice in employment and commissioning. And I think that's the thing to really think about with these things as, as using them as a standard, as a benchmark in the short term. And certainly feeding back on them in the sort of medium to long term about how, how can we make them work for the nursing profession absolutely and I think how can we make them work and not just sit on a on a shelf absolutely yeah yeah so that brings us to the end of our podcast so Elaine thank you so much for um sharing all your great insights with us it's been brilliant thank you Alison thank you for coming back to co-host oh thank you it's nice to be back And we'll be back in two weeks' time. So remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts, because that's a good way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.